What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and we are here again. More fire for your head top, more content, more real discussions with black and brown people or people that affirm the identities and experiences of black and brown people to center, that's right, black and brown people. And today is no different because, you know, we come to y'all with really good conversations, oftentimes with a special guest. And we have such a guest today, Corey Hale. Corey, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. I appreciate the fact that you're able to take the time to be on the show. For those of us who don't know you, can you talk a little bit about yourself? Yes, I can. But before I do, I noticed in the opening, you said the show is also for people that affirm the identities of black and brown people. And I was wondering if that included Rachel Dolezal. Oh, goodness. You know what? If Rachel wants to, you know what? This, this is the thing about Rachel. I don't, you know, it's, it's so confusing because she could have done so much more as an actual white woman. And, you know, given and used her privilege as a, you know, and, and given it away. Instead, she chose to, uh, I don't know, handicap herself, but then also like take a bunch of like praise. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. What do you think? You tell me. Yeah, I don't know. It is a it is a tough one. However, homegirl can definitely braid some hair based on the Netflix. Um, <laughs> she can braid hair. That I saw because I'm like, yo, I mean, normally um, white people just have less textured hair. So it's much harder to actually, you know, braid in extensions. And I ain't never even seen anyone iron some hair like that before. (laughs) (laughs) She was teaching me some stuff. (laughs) So I was I was like, oh, girl, I didn't even know you could do all that. That's so funny. But you know what? And I think this is a really good segue into um, into into what you do right? uh, and your platform. Um, But before (laughs) but I'd love to hear more about your journey and kind of. You know, and again, you know, you're, so let's let's just get out there. You're the CEO and founder of Culture Banks, which is which is a media platform um, for for black folks, for black and brown. Well, I'm, I'm going to say black folks, but I mean, I'll let you kind of get into it. But um, let's talk a little bit about your journey and kind of how you got there and then really more about what Culture Banks is. Yes. So my journey is, well, as I like to say, um, the path that we're all on in life is not easy nor is it paved in gold and that's a lot like my story i started out um, as an investment banker first internationally at a swiss bank in london and then i moved back to the states and i was with goldman sachs for several years and just really realized right that there wasn't anyone that looked like me delivering high level business financial news in a way that really would resonate with my community, with my core values. And so I was like, you know, if I can't figure this out, let me maybe try and go work at some of the big networks, specifically business news networks, right? And figure out how can I maybe inject some diversity because I think that a lot of us when you work in corporate America the main thing that you want to do is feel like and I I really actually hate when people use the word safe places like Hmm. or safe space like there's no safe space when you get up and you go to work for somebody else every day 
right? Because yeah, yeah. it's their company. So, like, that doesn't exist, even if they want to create some employee resource group or whatever. Like, the head of that employee resource group still reports to somebody that doesn't look like them. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of, like, to the CEO of the company. Um, and so... I thought I was going to be able to inject diversity at networks like Bloomberg and CNBC. And even when I was a news anchor down on the floor of the stock exchange and actually didn't even know until I was down there that I was the first African-American woman to ever anchor a daily news show from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in its 200 plus year history. And I thought, well, that's odd. I don't like what's going on here. Why is that never been a thing until I worked at this media startup. But through that transition of investment banking to then getting into media, what I really realized was that there was no outlet, broadcast, print, or digital that was going to deliver the type of content that I was looking for. So if a former investment banker, journalist, can't create this sort of company for communities that need it the most, then no one else is going to go out there and do it. And that really brings us more to present day and culture banks. And what we do is create business news for hip hop culture. And essentially all of our articles have music attached to it that then spins out into different curated Spotify playlists. So it's pretty dope, <laughs> if I do say so myself, because hey. I, I mean, it is. I look at music as that sort of um, underlying theme throughout all communities. That's an easy way to engage, an easy way to see a reflection of yourself. And what if we took that same approach to information and content and not keep pushing just entertainment and sports and celebrity and that sort of stuff into minority communities because we think and by we the people that are actually even pushing that content towards these communities aren't even from those communities but they're trying to say oh this is what they want this is the only thing they care about but that's not true it's just that you're putting it in a as I like to say razzle dazzle sort of way right you did the same thing when you talked about stocks and mergers and acquisitions. Right. What a difference you might see in those communities. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I think I think the other the other piece is like also acknowledging the work that those communities are already doing. Right. So there's more and more uh, black tech spaces that are coming up organically. Right. Like you think about. Um, there's like there, there's multiple of these types of pods like within the coastal cities, DMV, um, LA, Oakland, Houston, uh, Midwest and Chicago. Like there's all types of like just organic things are happening. Uh, healthy living co-ops. There's all types of activities that are happening in these again, like in these black and brown communities. But um, there are larger, I think, like, I don't know, just larger narratives and like and systems in place that uh, minimize those stories. And also like, there's also a lack of funding, right. And marketing awareness for those organizations that are already in place. What I think I hear you talking about is really exciting because you're, you're pushing more content. And then I, I also believe culture banks provides opportunities or at least um, opens up a lens to what is actually happening today in those spaces. Right. Yes, um, we definitely provide people with 
what we call the culturally attuned perspective in those spaces. I mean, it's easy to see a headline about, to your point, about um, minority, maybe co-working spaces or um, different companies, organizations, institutions that are focusing in the STEM fields as it relates to minorities. What we really try to push so at culture banks are the everyday stories though so not the just mm. where falls in a minority bucket because it mentions something about the latinx or asian or black community but this story is a headline on all of these platforms and this is information you need to know but they're not going to tell you exactly why it's relevant to your community why you should personally care about something like this and zach can i go ahead and give your listeners a quick example here come on so last year michael kors um the company the retail brand bought versace very famous um italian luxury retail brand for three billion dollars you would think on the surface, okay, well, that's interesting, I guess, if you're in the fashion, even if you're not in the fashion, but no one is telling you why that deal is really a play on urban culture. And the reason that Michael Kors really wants a bigger stake in Versace is because of Versace's long-standing love affair with hip-hop. Yes. Hip-hop in the community and hip-hop, of course, being the number one genre of music for the past decade. In the world. Right. Hip-hop leads these trends, making... And the majority of hip-hop artists are African-American. We've seen a huge rise, right, with Latinx performers in the hip-hop community as yes. well. Yes. But still all in, you know, in that minority category and just that spending power alone of African-Americans is currently at $1.3 trillion, making the spending power of this community larger than the economy of Mexico. Like, y'all gotta kill me when I say we, we have more than the entire country of Mexico just as an African-American community, a subset of the bigger um, U.S. population, but it's more powerful than entire countries. And so to get in front of that audience, right, is something that most brands want. And no one is going to talk about that the way that we're going to tell you this is why this is important, right? This market move by Michael Kors to acquire Versace is much bigger than them trying to perhaps get into more of the luxury business and much bigger than Versace trying to figure out how it can get into more stores. It's like, hey, we know their main audience, the people that are spending money. I mean, think of all of the free advertisement that Versace gets in hip hop songs. Oh, so so that no, 100 percent. And because part of me. I was talking to my I was talking to my wife about this. I was like, dang, I wonder I wonder are any of these rappers like do they have like deals that they don't talk about, right? Like when when Migos uh when Migos made that song made that song Versace, right? Like did they have like some secret deal to like like a marketing a marketing agreement and like did Drake get a piece of that? Cuz like it's just wild that you like we do that though. Like we'll talk about Polo, Versace, um Gucci. Like we love we love high-end brands. Talk about Patek's. Like we talk about Anything that's like European and very expensive, 
like they end up in rap songs and i was i just asked myself and maybe i'm a little bit more conspiratorial than i should be i'm just like i'm always thinking about like is there some grander scheme here like i, I was like i want i just wonder like is there some like larger agreement that maybe even some of these record labels have with these european brands to then create this content because you're absolutely right like we promote it at crazy levels like I wouldn't have wore polos when I was in middle school like I did if it wasn't for Kanye. And I wouldn't have wore, um, like I did just certain, there's just a bunch of clothes that I just, I wouldn't have purchased without like, without rap influence. You know what I mean? No, I completely understand what you're saying. And I think that that's what makes it so fascinating and so interesting is that other businesses, industry sectors, they really value Right, the trend setting and the tastemakers that come from minority communities more so than we will value our own, um, you know, power, and and that's the problem because sometimes I don't think that we really immensely understand the power that we have. So when things are not going right, let's say on the negative side, um, racism, sexism, those sort of things, like how valuable withholding your dollars to certain brands can be to move the needle yes no no you're, you're absolutely right and, and you know it's interesting because you know these these insights that you're having around media production like like the the business insights that you're having you're bringing to this space i mean i think it comes from your your business journey right like you've had a few different jobs like you don't and you don't really give the impression of someone who's afraid to change so like can we talk a little bit about where you started and then you know, what advice you would give to professionals who are wherever they are for whatever reason, and they're afraid to make a jump and to do something new? Yes, um, I actually really love kind of telling this particular part of my journey. Um, but I'm going I'm to take it back a little bit before I actually started working and, and shout out my undergrad university, Hampton University out there in the Hampton Roads area, right outside of Virginia Beach. And going to an HBCU um, is a very great experience. But for me personally, um, growing up in Houston, Texas, I grew up knowing and being around affluent African-Americans. So that wasn't like a stretch for me to see black people that had real money, not you know, the ship, the kind of clout money, as they say, but like real money. Um, that wasn't really a stretch for me, but going to Hampton University and really getting a full scope and breadth of black people from across the country, like that was very eye opening for me. And what it instilled was really the value of appreciating what we can do as a community and you know, us being a part of that talented tent and what that would mean for the future of our community. And after Hampton, when I moved to London and started investment banking um, at the at the Swiss bank UBS, I was like, huh, well, this is also odd because now I'm back in this super minority, like I call it a double minority status because I'm... Um, not just like a black person living abroad, but or I'm a black person and I'm also an American. So it, it was just a lot of things to have to work through. But coming back to the States from London and working at Goldman, 
um, I kind of got a better sense of the way that corporate America worked. And I wanted, at the time, I thought the ultimate goal was to become partner, right? That's what you kind of train right. for. Um, that's what you kind of work up or the, what you should be, as the company will tell you, you should be aspiring towards. And I'm like, uh, okay, so let me sort out this path. And I figured out what that path was about two years after I started at Goldman. I stayed another couple years. Um, but after those first two years and I figured it out, I also got into the mindset of, okay, I pretty much know what it's going to take and how long it's going to take me to get there. Like I, that, like that can't be the mountaintop, <laughs> so to speak. Right. Because there's got to be more to life than this. Straight and up. I really just took those next two years while I was at the firm to kind of navigate what I wanted to do. Like if you would have told me at the time that I started at Goldman that I would one day be running my own media company, like I would have laughed at you because I had no aspirations to be in media. I didn't know anything about journalism. Matter of fact, the day I left Goldman Sachs, I did not know one person that worked in media. I'm talking about not even an assistant, even a doorman at a building, security officer at a newsroom, nothing. Like I literally knew no one that actually worked in any news corporation. Um, but I felt like God spoke to me when I was at Goldman and said that this is what I should be doing, I just kind of decided to stick with it. And some of the partners that were mentors and sponsors for me, I ran this idea by them that I, you know, was going to leave Goldman and go to journalism school and try and become a business news journalist. They were very supportive. And they um, told me basically like you're young, I was around 26 um, at the time. And if it doesn't work out, you can always come back here. Like you can always come back to GS if it doesn't work out. But a lot of them are basically like, like, don't be like us. Like don't buy into essentially drinking the company corporate Kool-Aid, so to speak, and stay here because you figured out the path and it seems safe and secure because you're always look back. And say, but if I would have given this other thing a shot, even if I failed, um, at least I would have known I tried. And going back to a, a respectable organization like GS isn't a terrible fallback plan for anyone. Luckily, I haven't had to tap into that fallback plan, but you never know what the future holds. <laughs> right. So we can always see. But that's kind of how that transition happened. You know, it's just incredible because... I think it's, I'll speak for myself, right? Like, you know, I didn't think that I would get here where I am, you know, in my job. I didn't think that I would be, I didn't think I'd be working here. Like, I remember I was in high school. I said, I think I want to be a consultant one day. And my uh, high school counselor said, you're not going to be a consultant, right? After that, before I became a consultant, I was trying to pursue a, man, a career in HR. I had folks who looked like me say, you're not going to be an HR manager, right? So, you know, for me, because of that and not having a lot of people that look like me in these spaces, getting to one of these jobs seemed to be the mountaintop, right? But the reality is there's more to life than just working for somebody else. Um, and, you know, and no shame to anybody who wants to be a, like, who wants to be like a career, uh, career person. <laughs> but, but there's more than that. Um, you know, how did you navigate some of the, like, 
like the, the fear and anxiety that came with like making that jump. Now you came, so you, I'm not going to get into your pockets, but I would presume I could be wrong that perhaps your career at Goldman Sachs gave you a little bit more financial flexibility to like make and make certain moves and take certain risks that other people couldn't take. Is that a, is that a, is that a wrong assumption or is that, you know, did, did any of that come into play in terms of like, do you feel like you had, because of your job, you were able to, uh, you had more space to kind of take that leap? Um, I think my job gave me, and like the money that I made while I was there, it definitely gave me the flexibility to be able to go to Syracuse's Newhouse School of Communication and figure out like, could I make this journalism career like a thing? Um, I think it definitely gave me that because I had the confidence to know that if for whatever reason it didn't work out, I would be able to go back and have, you know, a very good paying job, but also like enough money to, for the most part, to help me at least get through like the schooling part. So let's talk a little bit about the concept of producing, right? So you're, you're a, you're a content creator, you're a producer. Um, it's a term it's a term though it's thrown around quite a bit right especially like in today's digital age what does it really mean in your mind to be a producer in the media space today um i look at content producers in general as people that are creating new original authentic shows articles, um, media content in general. So not the companies that are aggregators of information. Like there are a lot of companies out there that are basically just pulling stuff from other people's websites, but they're not actually holistically creating something that's not there before. And that's really a major differentiator in the space because to your point about a lot of different like black and brown minority-based concepts popping up, um, you got to be able to stand out on your own and be creating in a space that no one else is already creating in. Um, I think that we definitely need minority spaces, but we shouldn't divide and conquer, right? We're, We're stronger together. We don't necessarily need 50 different versions of co-working spaces for people of color i'm not saying that we only need one but would it make more sense to pull our efforts together in order to create something bigger no you're absolutely right i think you know it's interesting though because like it's like so like kind of going on the co-working space thing and like other ideas one because like our networks our net I don't know, our networks are just different. And also like, because sometimes we come into spaces late or we, and when I say come into spaces, I mean, we don't have the same amount of support to like mm-hmm. be early adopters in the spaces. Like we may see like our white counterparts do. So like we'll come into a space and we'll all come into the space at the same time. And so it looks oversaturated. Right. But I actually, I don't know. Like, so talk to me more about, cause you, you zoomed in on co-working spaces twice now. Like talk to me a little bit more about like what you're seeing in that space and like why, mm, like, like what's like what's your point of view on it? Because like I think they're really cool, 
I'm a consultant, so like I have a co-working space all the time because of like just the nature of my job. Like I can just go to any home office, like at my, through the through the firm that I work at. But I think they're a pretty cool idea, and they seem to be used. But like I'm not really like as plugged in, so like I'd be open to you educating me on it. Yeah. So I mean, I don't. I have a co-working space as well, but I don't really use it that much and it's not a co-working space at a place for people of color but specifically on that front like I do know a a couple founders that are trying to launch their own version some like specifically for women of color um, others specifically for founders of color in a particular sector like that sort of thing I, I actually feel like that is a very fragmented marketplace yeah um almost much in the way of the wing which is a very popular all-female co-working space that we work is actually invested in and i definitely think there's a space where you know women want to be but one of the main issues with the we work is that there are no men allowed which if you're a smaller business which most people that use co-working spaces tend to be um you don't always want to have to go outside of your co-working space for a meeting and i think there are other ones that have popped up along the way like there's one for women um executives right where that it's also fragmenting the market but it's fragmenting the market in a way that makes people feel like they're being part of an elite club if you know what i mean like oh you have to be at a certain level at whatever your organization is to be invited to be a member here right I think that sort of way of strategically planning out how you roll out different co-working spaces for people of color is a better um, strategic roadmap to success than just saying we're opening up a place for people of color. What would you recommend as the approach to like to unify and like desegment that space? Right. I think the best way to to look at it is like this is the community that we're trying to get in front of or that we're trying to help and really pinpointing what are the most important things to those people and I can actually liken that back to culture banks like and going into road mapping out how do you deliver content to this so-called new woke generation in a way that they can actually identify with and see a reflection of themselves and them in their community with and when you think of co-working spaces like what is it that's most important to the community um, of potential co-working clients and users that makes the most sense and back to culture banks for us it was everything that tends to be pushed that does really well in front of minority audiences has something to do around entertainment, music, celebrity. So it's how do we bring that to what we do so that it doesn't seem like it's such a far off leap for people to be interested. Let's talk about like the, the professional who maybe they're not looking to like start their own company. They're not looking to like right now that they're just they're just trying to survive at their job. Right. Let's talk about like the concept of producing and like bringing these and like the principles that you're talking about with culture banks. Like and how do you think those principles can be applied 
to a black and brown professional work because ultimately um, there seems to be a certain level of like purposefulness and um, and intentionality. That's the better word. A certain level of intentionality and strategy that it comes to being to really producing effectively and and really kind of managing brand. Do you think any of that could be effectively leveraged, utilized for folks in their nine to five jobs? Um, yes, but I think it always starts with figuring out, like knowing your end goal and and working backwards. So as I mentioned earlier, like when I thought my end goal was to become a partner at Goldman, it was okay. Well, I want to become a partner. I'm only a senior analyst now. Like, let's scale back from partner and see and work our way backwards and see what it takes to get there to your point, like your own self brand management at work every day. And funny enough, this is actually that a lot, something a lot of people don't know about me is I actually left Goldman about two months after I got promoted. Wow. <laughs> Which is, and but I'd already been, but this is what I talk about the planning. I'd already been planning like my strategic like exit um as you all know i'm sure that are listening right now you know you apply to school you gotta wait get in that sort of thing um you know take the test or whatever test you need to be admitted to these universities so like i had already been strategically planning that but i had also still been working on that plan of if i do stay and trying to you know navigate my way to someday becoming partner i was still working that plan too And, you know, just came to that crossroads of, huh, do I, I, even after I got promoted, I almost decided that I was going to stay and not even pursue this whole journalism path. I'm like, oh, well, this happened like sooner than expected. So, you know, I was on the high performing track, as they like call it as some companies, the fast track to moving up. Like I, there was no real reason for me to want to leave other than I felt like my life's purpose and calling was greater than what I was currently doing. And when you are constantly in this strategic mode of planning out, what does it look like in my nine to five every day to be able to push to the next level? Everything about what you do has to be very heavily managed as a person of color, especially And I know that in corporate America, people try to heavily like push this whole concept of mentorship and sponsorship. I will tell you, I'm not a huge fan of mentors. And every time I say that, people will like, they'll give me their pushback, which is fine. You're entitled to your own opinion. But especially in corporate America, sponsorship is significantly more powerful than mentors because mentors they can also be sponsors but you know how much more effective it is if you come to somebody with a game plan already and say would you be willing to help me navigate executing this plan or this strategy as opposed to going to a mentor and being like you know I'm really trying to figure out what role I want or moving to the next department and thinking through like show up with some skin in the game already. Like I've already done X, Y, and Z and it would be great if you could help facilitate. Now, obviously 
most people don't want to, I shouldn't say they don't want to. Most people want to feel like they're imparting their wisdom and knowledge on you. But if you're in a position where you can make that person look good by helping them or by them getting you to the next level, that only sets you up for more success. No, you're absolutely right. I also do think that there's a certain level. I don't know. I'm not trying to like pathologize nobody. And I'm not a psychologist. I do believe that there's a meta narrative of like uh, non minorities paternalistically trying to tell black and brown folks what to do. Mm-hmm. And they kind of revel in, you know, putting people in their place or 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 just raising them in some way. <laughs> so um, I, I 100% agree with you. I think a lot of that stuff is often like self self aggrandizing um, and egocentric. Um, to your point around like it's I think it's more about like the relationships you can build and then what value you can directly say that you help somebody else with to help them be successful. That's the way that I've seen people really climb up. Right. It's not necessarily being like, oh, this person pulls me aside and gives me things to work on and that's how I got promoted so fast that's not really the case because you and I both have seen folks in you know in industry who have no business being in the position they're in and yet you know they're there you know yeah I mean I think we all see that in this country starting at the very top um, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue oh wait a minute oh wait a minute hold on now not getting deeply into politics but just saying like it like it or love it or like it or hate it if, if you agree with this politics or not because people could say the same thing about 44 uh president obama like him or hate him you could argue one way or another and say maybe he didn't deserve ba- purely based on a resume not basing on anything else purely basing it on so-called skills and qualifications mm-hmm. for the you could make a case that he wasn't necessarily qualified and it could be justified. No, uh, I hear you. You can make the same case for the current president that he's not qualified for some of the same on the opposite end of the spectrum. I, I look at Barack and I say, excuse me, let me let me put some respect on that man's name. I look at President Obama. Come on now. Just saying. And saying. Um, <laughs> and say that it, it would be easy for people to say, you know, he doesn't actually have any business experience. He hasn't been serving in public office for any lengthy amount of time, like things that you would call into question for someone who will be taking the office of president. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have President Trump and you can say, yeah, he's run some corporations. They on the outside seem successful. But as we all know, when you dig in, there are lots of question marks and, you know, missing documents. Um, But you would say, but he's never served in public office. What does he know about actually serving people essentially that aren't, you know, paying customers in that way outside of the taxes that we pay? Um, And you would question whether or not that's someone that's fit for that position. So, yes, to your point, you we all find that. Why is this person in this position? Well, most of the time it comes down to a likability factor. It doesn't come down to skill sets. And that's really my point is that it's proven at the highest level. Like something that my mom always would say to my older brother, Keenan and I, um, primarily it started when we were in college. She would tell us you can either network or not work. Like you going into work every day and doing your job that you're hired for, that's only 50% of your job. The other 50% needs to be you networking with people 
because you don't know where your next opportunity is going to come from and your next opportunity the likelihood that it comes from what you're doing sitting at your desk every day is very slim come on now it mostly come from that person that you got coffee with once every two or three months and i think and i think this is the so i don't know i feel like you and i you and i should actually have like another conversation this isn't like you know we don't typically do like like in-depth conversations about different points of view on um on like whiteness um or just like privilege but like i'm curious to get your point of view on like even that like that that right there like the idea that you're building relationships off the people you're getting coffee with like there are barriers to making sure that you even get that coffee you know what i mean like there are certain people that get invited to get coffee and there's yep. some people who don't right and yep. then there's and then as you even get to like the executive levels um you know so many sales relationships are built on uh, historical uh relationship equity that black and brown people just don't have because they haven't been in these spaces and right. so like i'm curious as to like your point of view on what does it look like when you talk about when you talk about relationships when you talk about like navigating and we kind of strayed away from the concept of producing but i still think we're there like what does it look like to use to use those tools to then like create those connections as, as much as you can um yeah getting invited to coffee versus you know kind of pushing your way in i think that as a minority myself and other minorities especially working in um corporate america need to take that ownership of organizing of basically being like i'm gonna set up this sort of coffee situation and i can give you all an example of my own personal story so i worked at a media startup um called cheddar before i launched culture banks and i actually knew the founder of cheddar for a year or so before he ever ever even launched that company because he used to be the president of BuzzFeed and then after that he was the CEO of the Daily Mail. My goodness and gracious. I knew him because I would book him as a guest to come on this show I used to produce um, for called Squawk Alley on CNBC. Um, okay. And I used to just, you know, book him and you kind of just build relationships, right, from being a producer with different people and that is essentially how I got that next role so it had nothing to do with the fact of what I got up and went into work to do every day right right and well and it sounds again what I'm, I continue to hear is just about putting the willingness to put yourself out there it's just it's so interesting because like with with non-whiteness I believe comes a certain level of unfamiliarity right so like you have the if 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 you don't look like somebody even if so let's just say there's two white people right they may have completely different backgrounds like they may have completely different religious socioeconomic even like cultural backgrounds but that like the benefit of being of looking like somebody there are certain grace there's certain grace that's given and um and space that's made to like ease more easily build relationships. Whereas if you're a person of color, like what I'm hearing a lot, even though you're not saying it explicitly, Corey, is like you had to put yourself out there. You had to be, you had to be enterprising. You had to connect the dots. You had to be much more strategic and intentional with your time and with like, with even how you present yourself and the things that you're doing and what you offer, right? You had to, 
really kind of really you really had to be thinking from a position of value creation. Um, and that's that's great for you. Like you're clearly a beast, right? Like you you've you've been you've you've made moves moves. But what does it look like for you know like like teaching that to somebody who oh, is right who isn't wired that way? That could be challenging. Um, it definitely is, and I am by no way a master of teaching it to other people. I know I have personal friends that say, Corey, well, you're really great at public speaking, or like you're really great at going in and selling yourself or whatever it is that you're doing to other people. This is what I will say it's a learned skill. Like I didn't come out of the womb like doing this. Right. <laughs> um, there are definitely certain personality traits that are, are more akin to being able to just pick up these sort of um, things and these sort of characteristics. But it's a it's a learned skill day in and day out. It and it can start very basic. Going back to the coffee thing, like getting comfortable which I know this is overused with the uncomfortable, with making yourself uncomfortable. And if you're not the type that's going to send a random email, which I love when people say to me, well, I mean, what am I going to say? I'm like, to your point about it kind of being a bit narcissistic with mentorship and that is that people do love to talk about themselves. Right. So just put it out there that, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to learn more about what you do and make it more about them Normally, like if you were in a relationship and you broke up with somebody, you give them it's not you, it's me speech and business. Give them, you know, that it's not it's not about me. It's all about you speech. Like when you send the email, like, hey, this whole thing is about you, like, because you're so great. You're so fantastic. I just want to know about what you're doing as a way to soften the introduction or the awkwardness that you think lies there. Um, because you might not really know someone, even though that's something that you eventually might want to do or an area that you might want to move into. You have to do more because you didn't go to boarding school with so-and-so. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. You probably didn't go to all the, the right Ivies. And even as black people that have gone to Ivies, like Listen, if you I've heard, I've heard, I've heard, yeah, I've heard the experiences are different. Yeah, like if you didn't grow up in that world, like you're still not necessarily accepted. So I think it's just you have to push yourself out there because they're not going to know to contact you. Like your parents, y'all, you know what I'm saying? Y'all don't go sell off, I don't know, Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> you didn't grow up going to summer camp for two months after you left boarding school. So basically you only see your parents on holidays and you you're didn't. not even college you only in the seventh grade right you didn't go to vermont making artisanal pickles you know what i'm saying no you didn't do any of that (laughs) so they already have 10 and that's just like at your level yeah you gotta think of how connected these parents are right right like you're fighting a major uphill battle and you can't go in every day and just say I'm heads down. I'm going to do a great job, which is something that they try to preach to you, right? Like, just go in, work hard, excel at your role. Like, that's how you're going to see opportunity. That's not true. Like, like <laughs> you're not, you know, you know why you're not going to see any opportunities? Because your head is down at your desk right. on the computer. Screen. Meanwhile, and then meanwhile, we, anything that's going around. No. And, me, and meanwhile, we're upset 
Uh, meanwhile, we're upset. We over here like, what more do you want from me? You know, it's just like what? Like, like we're doing everything we can. So, not one hundred percent. I hear you, and I I agree with you, right? And not that I need to agree with you. This is a space of open ideas, you know. So, diversity of thought is not real, but we do appreciate diversity of thought as it pertains or intersects with uh, lived experiences of Black and Brown folks. So. This has been super cool. Um, look, you've talked. We talked about culture banks. We talked around culture banks. One thing we haven't done is talk about where people can learn more about culture banks. So please <laughs> drop the info in here. We'll make sure to put it in the podcast notes and everything. But please yeah. let us know. Check us out at Culture Banks. That's with an X. dot com. Um, you can find all the content on our website. Sign up for our newsletter, daily newsletter, bringing you the latest, greatest, most important business news for the culture, as we say, um, every single day. You can also listen to the Culture Bank's daily news briefing on any smart speaker device, also on Spotify. Everything is at Culture Banks on social media. Luckily, we got in. There's no other company called Culture Bank, so it's the same. Hey, that's not that's people, people <laughs> underestimate how powerful it is. If you All have right. the only name and you got the domains, because let me tell you, let me tell you something. I got anyway. Like I'm, no, keep going. I'm, I'm messing your plug up. Keep going. No, keep going. you're not. But it is important. Like everything is literally just at Culture Banks with an X. People, don't forget. Please say the X. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Well, look, this is this has been super dope. Um. And, you know, we just really appreciate you. Um, before we let you go, any parting words or shout outs? Um, parting words. I think the main parting words I would have is something that we say on our show, which is just keep building for the culture. Come on now. We got to do it for each other. Straight up. You're absolutely right. Now, look, uh, this has been a dope conversation. Uh, thank you all for listening to the Living Corporate Podcast. Now, look. Y'all know I was so I wasn't trying to mess up Corey's plug, but y'all know we got all the living corporates. Okay, we got livingcorporate.co, livingcorporate.org, livingcorporate.net, livingcorporate. You know what I'm saying? Livingcorporate.us. We don't have livingcorporate.com. We have living-corporate. Please say the dash.com. But we don't. <laughs> but we don't have livingcorporate.com. Australia has livingcorporate.com. Believe it or not, Corey, Australia, and they selling corporate stuff. But see, the SEO looking kind of kind of brolic out here because now when you type in uh, cor- living corporate, it used that used to be at the top. Now they like you know like eight or nine. You know what I'm saying? Like we we applying pressure. You feel me? I do. One, I definitely do. One, it's good. One day the brand will be brolic enough where we're going to go to Australia and we will politely, respectfully yank that domain right on back and we're going to have all the living corporates. We're going to just sit on a mountain of domains. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a bad idea. I'm actually helping out this um, other startup that's trying to modernize central banks. And the name of the company, which I won't throw out there right now, is, is so generic. And the person, the founder has been using like different versions of the name of the company to try and set up, you know, different social accounts. And they have even the website's name is not what she calls the actual name of the company. And I'm like, this is too confused. Like people don't know where to go. No, you're 100%. I mean, people have be having like the dopest ideas and be like, oh, we're going to launch bread.com. Like, yo, fam, you got to figure out something else. Like, right. You had to launch bread.com when the internet first started. (laughs) (laughs) Like, late 80s, mid late 80s. Like, that's when you needed to launch that. But at this point, no. Straight up. 
man, this is funny. This is like the first like interrupted outro we've done, but it's really good. I like it. We might have to start doing this moving forward. Um, all right, y'all. Look, you can check us out. Now we're everywhere. You just, in fact, just Google Living Corporate at this point. That's right, stunt. That's right, low key flex, but it's an honest flex. So. Google Living Corporate. We out here. If you have any questions you want to email us, check us out at uh, livingcorporatepodcast.gmail.com. Hit us up on the DMs. Twitter is livingcorp underscore pod. Uh, Instagram is livingcorporate. And until next time, this has been Zach. You've been talking to Corey Hale, CEO, founder of Culture Banks. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.